I appreciate you being here this morning. I'm excited for this series that we're starting. It's through the book of Acts, and I've titled it Unstoppable. It is the account that follows right after uh, the death, uh, the crucifixion, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, just on the cusp of him ascending into heaven and giving his followers and the church the Holy Spirit. And I'm I'm excited to go through this um, because it really gives us a, a standard, an example, a model of those who have come before, those people of faith that have come before, and set for us an example of what it is to be a disciple. Uh, It will be a challenging study. It will be a convicting study. Um, And I'm a little bit nervous about going through it because I don't know if we're ready for it, if I'm honest. Because what we're going to see in the book of Acts are people who lived out the command in Matthew 6.33 to seek first the kingdom. And don't worry about all the other stuff. The book of Acts was written by Luke. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Luke was a doctor, uh, and, and he wasn't one of the 12 apostles. He wasn't one of the original disciples. Of the four Gospels, two of them were disciples of Christ, known as apostles. Two of them were not. Matthew and John were disciples of Jesus. Mark and Luke were not. Mark and Luke come along and they tell the stories that they've heard. They investigate, they tell the stories. Mark probably was Peter's, the apostle Peter's companion, and wrote down Peter's recollection and stories of Jesus. Luke was different. As a doctor, he was actually a slave. Don't think of doctors in biblical times as doctors in our times. Doctors in our times have some level of prestige and income and wealth and prominence in the society. Back in biblical times, doctors were owned by wealthy people. They were slaves. And so Luke is this doctor who is living as a slave for uh, a man that the Bible says is Theophilus. So Theophilus is probably the individual who was the wealthy one who owned Luke employed him as his personal doctor, and he's investigating the stories that Theophilus have been told about Jesus and the way, the way is who that they call the, the, the church, uh, and the stories he's heard himself. And Luke wrote uh, the majority of the New Testament, though it was only two books. The volume of Luke and Acts are, are, are more than any other New Testament writer. Paul wrote the most books of the New Testament, but Luke wrote the most volume in the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Uh, And and what's happening, what we read in the book of Acts, is really we're starting to see the fulfillment of what Jesus said in Matthew. In Matthew 16, 18, the last part of that verse, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And so what we're seeing in Acts is this coming to fruition, coming to reality. That this first church is fleshing out what it has heard and learned from the lips of Jesus, from the teachings of Jesus. They're taking this and saying, this is what we saw in him. This is what he taught us. This is how now we're going to live it out in our lives. And what they experience is the reality that disciples who have our kingdom first disciples, that the gates of hell can't even stand against their testimony and God's kingdom in the world. And that's what we're going to see in Acts. Here's, as we go through Acts, everything in Acts must be read through the lens of the disciples' boldness to witness. We, we, we ought not ever read Acts and just simply look at for all the cool stuff Jesus did or the polity or practice of the church or any of that. The lens through which we read everything in the book of Acts must be read through the lens of the disciples' boldness to have a verbal witness and testimony to their world and the people around them. 
It's not about their own righteousness. It's not about how they changed their lifestyle. It's not about how they behaved and lived in the world. It's about their verbal, bold witness in front of people in their world, part of their huddle. It is kingdom above all. It's kingdom at all costs. It's kingdom as the priority. It's kingdom over all desires. It's kingdom over all allegiances. That's discipleship in the book of Acts. And that is our model. And that is our standard. And that is why I don't know if we're ready. If I'm honest. What we'll read in the book of Acts is the heritage of the Christ follower, of the disciple. What we read in the book of Acts, these are our forerunners. These are our standard. And so many people approach God and approach the Bible for what we can get from God. And there is a lot to be gained from him. And he has a heart of a loving father that gives good gifts to his kids, no doubt. That seeks and desires to intervene. That's why he came, That's why Jesus came. But most people come to Jesus, come to God, come to Scripture for what we can get from him. And honestly, the role of the disciple is his kingdom above all. His kingdom may involve giving, certainly. But the role of the disciple is not to get. The role of the disciple is kingdom above all. And that's what we'll see in Acts. And I just want to know, are you ready? Acts 1, verses 1 and 2. In my former book, what's, what's Luke's former book? Good. Most of you are keeping up with me so far. That's good. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and uh, began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. So he addresses who this, he's writing this. He's writing this to Theophilus. It's interesting. In the book of Luke, he addresses Theophilus again right at the beginning of that book as well, chapter one. And he calls Theophilus most excellent Theophilus. In Acts, it's just Theophilus. Here's what I think is going on in Luke. When he sets out on this task at the charge and direction of Theophilus, his master, he notes Theophilus as the most excellent Theophilus. He gives him that title. As he investigates Christ, his claims, his actions, his miracles, his death, resurrection, and, and understands the ascension that will happen, as he's, as he's compiling all this, he realized that there's only one who is most excellent, and it ain't Theophilus. And he's realizing there's this change within him that when he understands who Jesus is, it puts every other authority in proper perspective. Where Theophilus started and looks like as the most excellent Theophilus now is just Theo. Because Christ is the only most excellent. It's an interesting change. If you read Luke's writings between Luke and Acts, it's an interesting change. Something's happened in him. And he says, I'm writing to you all that Jesus began to do. All that he began to do. Implied in that, that he began to do, means he's not done yet. He just began. He's continuing. And he continues to do, Jesus Christ continues to do through his disciples by the empowering of the Holy Spirit in the church. That's why Jesus said, it's good for you that I leave, because if I don't leave, I can't send you another of my exact same kind, the Holy Spirit, who will be with you and in you, and you will do even greater things, not in quality, but in quantity. And so all that I'm writing to you, all that Jesus began to do, but he continues to do through you as his disciples when you're empowered by the Holy Spirit. This is our model, and this is our standard. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave 
uh, many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. When, the, when Luke says Jesus gave to the people many convincing proofs about his resurrection, about his life, the proof that Jesus gave wasn't just proving that he had raised in bodily form and beat death by eating because only a live body can eat. It wasn't just that he showed them his, 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 his physical body that was raised. It wasn't just the, the, the convincing proofs. The Greek word for those convincing proofs, he literally means the convincing proofs that is your life. He says your lives are the convincing proof of the reality of Jesus and his resurrection. In other words, he's saying the, your life, the fact that before the resurrection you were cowards and after the resurrection you're martyrs, your life is the convincing proof of the resurrection of Jesus that the world cannot deny. Please understand this. Life changes always the most convincing proof. And God would say the exact same thing to you and I if we claim to be disciples of Christ, that it's our lives that are the convincing proof of the resurrection of Jesus to a world that doesn't believe yet. It's not the miracles. It's not the big stuff. It's not the bangs and the wows. It's your life. The change that's happened in your life that I used to be and now I am. And the only thing that's different is Jesus was in between. Nobody can argue with a life change. And the charge for the disciple is to have such a quantifiable life change that their lives are the convincing proof of the resurrection of Jesus. So here's the question. What's the proof in a life that claims Christ and looks exactly like the world? What's the proof? Same debt. Same hurts, habits, and hang-ups. Same addictions. Same social media. Same relationships. Same grudges. Same hurts. Do you understand? Like there ought to be, when Jesus enters a life, and then infuses that life with the Holy Spirit. Such life changed that that life is the convincing proof of the resurrection. That's what Luke's saying. And that's what he's claiming was the result of these, of these early followers. And that's why I don't know if we're ready for the book of Acts. It's so profound in its presentation of discipleship. Your role in your huddle, my role in my huddle, those 8 to 15 people that are around our lives with whom we have consistent relationship and influence with, our role with our huddle is that they would see such a difference in us that we would convince them of the proof of the resurrection. The reason the witness of the first church changed the world is because the lives of the first disciples were changed. Their boldness, their sacrifice, their public witness, their extreme generosity, their forgiveness of their enemies, their peace with others, who were not peaceful towards them, the reordering of their life's priorities, their unapologetic allegiance to the kingdom, their purity, their joy, their devotion to the world, their conversations within and without themselves were so profoundly changed that the world and their huddle could not deny the resurrection of Christ. That's the model. That's the standard. Acts tells their story. 
and gives us that model and standard of discipleship for everyone who claims to be Christian. A disciple of Jesus cannot read and study the book of Acts and stay comfortable. I want you to understand that. A disciple of Jesus cannot read and study the book of Acts and stay comfortable. No matter how young or old you are. And so that's why I say, I don't know that I'm ready to teach through Acts. Because I'm telling you, as we study this as a church and you come to church on Sunday, there's going to be great moments of uncomfortability. I don't know if I'm ready for it. I don't know if you're ready for it. See, a lot of people, <coughs> a lot of people think Christians look like good, red, white, and blue American conservative Republicans. And a lot of people think Christians look like universally loving and accepting and social justice liberals. And neither of those are accurate. A Christian looks like the book of Acts. You want to keep going? Sean said yes, so we're going to keep going. On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They were thinking according to Scripture, because the Old Testament indicates that when God gives his spirit upon his people, the nation of Israel, with that will come the restoration of the nation of Israel in the land. Read the, 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 the book of jo, uh, Joel. talks about this very thing. That when God gives his spirit upon his, upon his nation, his people, his chosen ones, that the, accompanying with that will come the restoration of his people again, to prominence. Now, that's what they had in mind because that's what they had in mind with the Messiah. They were expecting a political reign, a political move to free them from the oppression of the Romans. So they're thinking biblically, they're, they're, they're getting one thing wrong, the application of it and the timing of it. They weren't too far off, but what they were missing was the timing. So, so they, God says, you're going to, you know, Stay here, the Holy Spirit's going to come. And, and, and they think, okay, so when is all this good stuff going to happen? They immediately go to timing. Watch what happens. He said, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all, all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Understand this. We're not supposed to know the timing of God. We're supposed to fulfill the calling of God. Many times we want to know God's timing. God, when will you? When will you step in? When will you intervene? When will you change? When will you rescue? When will you move? When will you act? Our question is a question of timing. God's response is don't concern yourself with timing. Concern yourself with calling. Jesus doesn't give us a time frame. Jesus gives us a calling. And in the midst of fulfilling God's calling, God reveals his timing. Most of our problem has to do with us getting impatient with God's timing, and we want to know when. 
God, I've waited. God, I've prayed. God, I've changed. God, I've acted. When will you? When will you? When will you? When will you? God has never promised to give us knowledge of his timing. What he has done is give us a calling. In the midst of all the things that we want to know when, God says, will you stop worrying about that and fulfill my calling? Because when you fulfill my calling, I'll take care of the timing. You know the reason why we doubt so much and struggle so much? It's because we're looking for something God never said he would provide. An understanding of timing. One of the reasons we struggle so much and doubt so much is because we're disobedient to his call, which is to witness in the midst of the circumstance. God's calling is really easy to understand. There's a twofold calling. There's a calling on the person who isn't a follower of him, and there's a calling on the person who is a following of him. The calling of the person who isn't a follower of Jesus is to become one. Second Peter, he's patient with you. All you who continue to deny him, he's really patient with you. Because he doesn't want anybody to perish, but wants everyone to come to repentance. So his calling on the person who doesn't trust him yet is to trust him. To come to repentance and experience this relationship with him. His second calling is for those who have that relationship. And his calling is to be a witness for him in the kingdom. Just think about this for a moment. This is what I see in the book of Acts from disciples. Just think about this one. Think about shifting your prayer life rather than praying for God to do something and to intervene and to change. Pray rather that you will be a witness for him in the midst of. Because that's your call. You will be my witnesses. Don't worry about the timing. It's not for you to know the timing. Your calling is to be a witness. I wonder how that would change our prayers. God, I need you to intervene. And I need you to, I need you to do. And I need you to act. And I, I do. I, I need that from you. But regardless of that, Empower me by your spirit to be a witness for you in the kingdom in the midst of it. That's your calling. See, God wants us to be a witness for him to his kingdom and of his kingdom. And our prayer is that he change the circumstances so we don't have to. You're tracking with me, right? God allows things in our lives that puts us in a position to be a powerful witness as a disciple who trusts the sovereignty of God. Imagine what happens when that disciple simply prays and prays and prays and gets stuck on, well, God, change that because I don't want to be that. I want you to rescue me out of that. He says, well, if I do that, you miss your call. Remember, seek first the kingdom of God and don't worry about the timing of everything else. The book of Acts is about people who know their call and pursue it with reckless abandon. Young people and old people alike, disciples of Christ, pursuing that call to be witnesses to the world with reckless abandon. Let me just make a little note here, especially to parents. Don't talk to your kids about potential. Matter of fact, all of us don't think in terms of potential. Think about and speak in terms of calling. Potential means nothing. 
It's just this nebulous word that nobody can define. What is your potential? I don't know, but it's a lot. What's a lot? Well, my potential. Well, what is potential? I don't know, but there's a great deal of it. Well, what? Like, it's, you can't. So here's the deal a, a life who isn't attached to Christ has very limited potential. But a life that has Christ in it has unlimited potential because the Bible says with God all things are possible. So potential means nothing. The Bible never talks about an individual's potential. It does talk about the individual's call. To, to, to ask a child to grow up to their potential is, is, a, is an unreachable, it's nothing. But God gets very specific with an individual's calling. And that calling is what unleashes God's potential, not yours. So when you understand God's call and start to fulfill God's call, God reveals his potential. Do you understand? But the focus isn't on you, it's on him. And so forget about this whole potential thing. Focus on calling. When you can get your, if you're a a parent, and I don't care how old your kids are, if you can get your kids to start to understand, yearn for, pray for, and discern their calling, God will reveal his potential. If you keep them focused on their potential, they will always strive for something they will never attain. See how beautiful this is? Kingdom above all. This is the the key verse for all of Acts. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Actually, the book of Acts is divided into those four sections. This is the key to the entire book of Acts, and it's an outline to the entire book, and it's the universal purpose of both God's church and God's disciple to be a witness empowered by the Holy Spirit As I've read through and studied the book of Acts over and over and over again, one of the things I keep coming back to is the one way, the one way that you know the Holy Spirit has come in you and upon you is that you are a bold witness for Christ and his kingdom. It, it's, it's not through all the hubba bubba and all the like crazy spirit stuff that you might see. That's not how you know the Holy Spirit has come upon life. Because Jesus even said, you will move mountains and heal people and cast out demons in my name, and you don't even know me. So the proof of the Holy Spirit being in a life is not all the crazy stuff. The proof, according to the book of Acts, the proof of the Holy Spirit being in a life is that person becomes a bold witness verbally to Christ and his kingdom. I challenge you, you do it for yourself. Study the book of Acts and you find someone for whom the Holy Spirit came upon that was not a powerful, bold witness. You won't find it. You know, it's interesting. The book of Acts covers about 30 years of history, church history. And there's about 30 miracles in the book of Acts. Which means that in all the known world, through the church, there was one miracle a year. I mean, we read the book of Acts like, man, there's stuff happening all over. You get a miracle, and you get a miracle, and you get a miracle. It's like an Oprah show, you know what I'm saying? It's like, it's one a year. And I guarantee you that for God's church around the world today, there's at least one miracle a year. It's the same as the book of Acts. So the proof of the Holy Spirit in a life and in a church is not all these miracles start popping. That's just, it's such a poor misreading of Scripture and bad theology. The proof of the Holy Spirit in a life in a church is not the miracles that happen. It's the bold witness that every one of them who's filled with the Holy Spirit starts to proclaim to the world. The purpose of the Holy Spirit in a life is that life becomes a witness, a bold witness. Not just in lifestyle, but as a verbal witness using words. 
I mean, there's so many people, and I, I guess I get it. At some level, you think, well, you know, my life is so different. I'll just walk around and people know I'm a Christian. I got so much Holy Spirit radiation flowing around me. <laughs> Jesus didn't even do that. And every time you read the book of Acts, you see the Holy Spirit come upon somebody that immediately, it's just a bold witness. See, lifestyle change, behavioral lifestyle change, is proof of repentance through salvation. But a bold verbal witness is a sign of the Holy Spirit's indwelling. And they're meant to go hand in hand. And so, if there isn't a bold witness, a bold verbal testimony for Christ and his kingdom, it's a sign that one has not been empowered by the Holy Spirit or chooses to be disobedient to their call. Want to keep going in Acts? Flip those slides. Let's go through verses 9, 10, 11. Look at this. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So, so Jesus... Jesus is, is, has just given them this charge. He's just given them this, look, Holy Spirit's going to come on you. You're going to be my witnesses. They, you know, we just had a great breakfast at the lake, and like I, I've, I've proved to you I'm, 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 like, I'm back, and I'm going to get my Holy Spirit, and you're going to be my witnesses, and uh, see you later. And, and, and the moment, like, if that were me, I feel like I'd be like, yeah, well, let's go, man. I love to travel to Maria, ends of the earth. It's going to be fun, man. Let's get after this. And the moment he tells them this, he goes up, and they're like. Hmm. And these two angels show up. They're like, hey, he just told you. He just gave you a charge. He just gave you a commission. He just gave you this con. Why are you standing around loitering? And I just wonder. If God would say the same to us, I've given you a calling. Why are you wasting your time loitering with things you're not called to? I've given you a calling. And you're loitering on all this other stuff that I haven't called you to and all this other attention that grabs your time and grabs your energy and grabs all, like, why are you wasting your time? Loitering things you're not called to. Right? Right? Verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room. If, you, if you're a Bible, like circler, circle the. It's the room. It's probably the room where they, where they shelled the Last Supper with each other. Like it's the place. They're comfortable with it. They know it. It's where they last really had this intimate time with Jesus before the crucifixion. Those present are Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They're listing the 11. They make sure that Judas, the betrayer, is never... They make sure that everybody knows he's not around anymore. They all join together constantly in prayer. Listen, when, when Luke uses that word join together, 
It's a very specific word in Greek. It's used 12 times in the New Testament. 11 of them are in, are in Acts. It speaks of the unity, united in thought and purpose. The only other time it's used is in the book of Romans. So this is really unique to Luke. And it's a special word that says, look, this is, this is what the church was about together, all in unison. There was no, dis- everybody's rowing the boat. No one's left a rocket. along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. There were a lot of women who were part of Jesus' disciples. They weren't apostles, but they were disciples. A lot of women in Jesus' life that were the supporters and funders of his, uh, they funded his ministry. And so they're all there together with his Mary, and the Bible says, and his brothers. Mary and Joseph had a lot of kids. Now, Jesus wasn't one of them. Mary had Jesus, but his father was not Joseph. Then Mary and Joseph had a lot of kids. Contrary to what many Catholics believe, she continued to have babies. And finally, after the ascension, do his half-brothers realize that he was the Messiah? It's so interesting to me how much familiarity breeds contempt. That which we're used to, we just hold in contempt. Whether it's your wife a teacher, a coach, a pastor, a boss. What if you're if you're if you're used to him, you hold him in contempt. That's just what we do. His own brothers held him in contempt until they realized the reality of the resurrection. They're like, "Oh, snap." And they finally believe. Now watch what happens. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group number about 120. Why is it listed 120? Because 120 was under Jewish law. There had to be 120 men in order for their own counsel to become a commandment. So this is going to be a command that Peter does. Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. For Peter said, it is written in the book of Psalms, this is verse 20, may his place be deserted, let no one dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, Peter says, it's necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us just a little while ago. For one of these must become a witness with us to his resurrection. Again, witness. So they proposed two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these you have chosen to take this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. The la- then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the 11 apostles. Here's what's going on. Pain and difficulty draws to God's word. And Peter has been through it. The best of it, the worst of it, the reinstatement of it. And so he's drawn back to the word of God. The interesting thing, this is the first place in scripture in all of Peter's interaction with Jesus where Peter ever quotes scripture. And this is what pain does. It draws us to the Bible. The problem is that He got the scripture right, but the application and timing was all wrong. And and he had a problem that needed to be solved, a 12th apostle. And he used the Bible to affirm what he already wanted to do. He got the scripture right, but the application and timing all wrong. They chose Matthias. You never hear one word about Matthias from here on out. He drops from the pages of scripture. He drops from the pages of history. You never hear anything about him. You know who you do hear about? The Apostle Paul. Galatians 1.1 says, Paul, an apostle. There it is. He's the one who should have taken Judas's place. Because he was sent from, uh, uh, not from men, nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul was the apostle. We talk about as the apostle Paul. And so Peter was right that one had to take his place. But Peter was so focused on the Bible affirming what he already wanted to do, he pushed God's timing and did what he wanted to do under the guise of the Scripture. 
You know how they chose Matthias? By what? By lots. You know what lots are? Dice. They rolled the dice. Which wasn't a bad way of doing it. The Old Testament commanded that. Leviticus 16, Numbers 26 says, you want to know God's will? Old Testament, roll the dice. Here's the problem. Acts is not Old Testament anymore. Jesus told them that who was coming. Yeah, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's coming. It's not Old Testament anymore. And, and, and so had Peter just waited like he was commanded, his call was to wait and to witness. Had he just waited for a moment for the Holy Spirit to come, I'm convinced the Holy Spirit would have said, Paul, or would have said, Peter, I got someone in the waiting. I'm preparing someone right now. You don't know my timing, but my calling is on this guy. His name is Saul. You've heard of him. I'm going to change his life. It's going to be named Paul. He's my apostle. Just wait. I'm convinced had Peter just slowed down, trusted God's timing, worried about his calling, They would have never cast lots. This is the last time lots is ever mentioned in Scripture. Why? Because the Holy Spirit came. And after the Holy Spirit comes, the role of the disciple is to wait on him. Focus on your call. Let God worry about the timing. And I'm convinced that the Holy Spirit would have told them all, just wait, it's okay. You're right, the Bible says that. You're wrong on the timing. Focus on your calling. Let me worry about the timing. And I'm convinced that he'll tell us the same today. You got a need, you're worried about something, focus on your call. Let him worry about the timing. Can, can I do one more thing? I skipped two verses. I skipped verses 18 and 19. I want to go back to verses 18 and 19. When Judas um, betrayed Jesus, he did it for 30 pieces of silver. And then he fell under conviction. He walked back into the temple and threw it down on the ground. 30 pieces of silver was the normal charge he would buy a slave with. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. And there he fell headlong. His body burst open and his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Akaldama, that is a field of blood. It was the potter's field. And we're told how this whole thing, now Luke is retelling the story. We hear about it from Matthew the first time in real time. It says the chief priest picked up the coins and said, it's against the law to put this in the church bank account because so, it's blood money. So suddenly they get a little bit of integrity, I guess, huh? So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That's why it's been called the field of blood to this day. Here's what's going on. The potter's field. The money from Jesus' blood. The price of Jesus' blood was used to buy a potter's field. The potter's field was one of two things. Either it was the field belonging to a potter, and if that were the case, it was the field where the potter would extract all of the good stuff, all the nutrients, all the quality, all, 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 all the things that God had put in it would draw it all out and use it. So that field just becomes abused and used and pitted and gutted. So it's worth nothing anymore. It's just a dry, barren place. Or it's the potter's field in in, in the sense that the potter, in making pots and they would break, would throw the shards that were unusable into a field. And year after year, what's deposited in that field is trash and refuse and trash and refuse and broken pieces. So that field becomes unusable. It's just full of pain and brokenness. Either one of those could be what this potter's field was. Here's the thing. It was the price of the blood of Jesus that bought that and made it usable. Do you understand the correlation? It was the price of Jesus' blood 
that bought that worthless field and redeemed it. Some of you, your lives are the field of the potter. And from you have been extracted and stolen. Good after good. Quality after quality. Talent after talent. And it's been stolen from you and taken from you and stolen from you and taken from you. And it's never been replenished. And you sit here in a field that's completely empty. That feels like your life. I got nothing left to give. Or some of you, it's the other story where everybody has dumped their trash, their refuse, broken piece after broken piece after broken piece. So much so that you're just left as this field of brokenness and shards and pain and refuse. And I need you to understand, you need to understand that it's the price of the blood of Jesus that redeems that. You can do all the work you want in that field by yourself apart from the price of the blood of Jesus and it will be to no avail. You'll never replenish what's been stolen. You'll never clean out what's been deposited. You'll never redeem that which feels worthless. Saved by the price of the blood of Christ. You understand? And when we understand the price of the crucifixion and the liberation of the resurrection, we put kingdom above all. Because it is beautiful. Let me just ask you this. Two things. For you who are Christ followers, I'm going to give you a chance to commit to God, to not worry about timing, but to focus on your calling. And to ask the Holy Spirit to empower you so that you are a bold witness, not just in lifestyle and life change, but in verbal testimony of Christ and his kingdom. The second thing I'm going to give you a chance, if you are that field, and you've not yet leveraged the price of the blood of Jesus against that. Today is your day. I want you to walk out of here without that. So pray with me. Father, there are some of us today who sit here having responded to your call. And we've kind of been wrong in thinking that you've come so that we could simply have an abundant life and we keep asking stuff from your hand and have not taken seriously the command to put kingdom first above all things. Father, hear our prayer. If you have a relationship with Jesus and you want to be a disciple of him, I want to invite you in this moment to commit to God and say, Father, I will not worry about timing anymore. Yours is the timing and the seasons, not me. I will focus on my call. Empower me with your Holy Spirit to be a bold witness for your Son and your kingdom. I will leave the timing of all things to you. And I promise this day to focus on your calling to be your witness in the midst of all things. I receive your Holy Spirit in and on my life that I may be a bold witness for Christ and your kingdom. 
Father, there are people in this place who have prayed that prayer. Do it. By the authority of the name of Jesus and the promise of your word. There are others here, some of you, who are that field. And I want to invite you to leverage the price of the blood of Jesus against that brokenness and emptiness. And in this moment, you to say, Father, I'm broken, I'm empty, and I need to be new. I confess my sin and leverage Jesus, your blood, against it. I accept salvation. I accept renewal by the blood you shed on the cross for my sin, Jesus. And I give myself to you today. You said you would make all things new. I'm part of that all. And I accept the newness that you've birthed in me. I trust you. And now you join the rest of us. Holy Spirit, empower me to be a witness now. Father, that's the charge. That's our call. Thank you that you gave it to us and thank you that that what you've called us to, you'll empower us to fulfill. Help us not get sidetracked looking up in the stars, stargazing and loitering around with things you've not called us to. We trust your name, Jesus. We value your name. We honor your name. And we know at your name that mountains will move. And we know at your name that demons will tremble. We know at your name that angels will bow. We know at your name that we will rejoice. And so by the name of Jesus and the power according to his authority, we pray these things. Amen and amen.